Welcome to the Independent News Hour. In the headlines today, fighting between Israelis and Palestinians escalates. A corporate-friendly rezoning of Governor's Island passes a key vote in city council. Brooklyn activists hold a people's filibuster outside Chuck Schumer's home. Good evening in New York. I'm John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. Cross-border fighting escalated today in historic Palestine with Israeli jets carrying out airstrikes in the Gaza Strip while Hamas launched rockets at Tel Aviv and other Israeli cities. Officials in Gaza report that 26 Palestinians, including nine children, have been killed. Two people in Israel were also reported killed. Military clashes come on the heels of Palestinian protests in East Jerusalem against Israeli efforts to evict families from their homes in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood. Over the weekend, Israeli forces entered the Al-Asqa Mosque in East Jerusalem, firing tear gas and stun grenades and injured an estimated 300 Palestinians. The conflict comes as New York City's mayoral race enters its final six weeks. Frontrunners Andrew Yang and Eric Adams both tweeted their unyielding support for Israel, while Diane Morales, who moved into third place in one poll this week, called on Israel to end its assault on the Palestinians. This is journalist Alex Kane. So as we speak, Israeli warplanes are in the sky over, over the Gaza Strip, a coastal enclave that has been under blockade by Israel since 2007. And they are raining missiles down on a civilian population with nowhere to go. They've killed um, over 20 people so far. And in New York City, a city with a, a long connection to Israel, mayoral candidates are busy defending Israel without speaking out for Palestinian rights, except for uh, Diane Morales. So all the major leading mayoral candidates um, have issued statements that just defend what Israel is doing without mentioning the fact that Palestinians are under blockade and are under the an unrelenting assault by Israeli warplanes. We'll talk more with Alex after the headlines. We'll also get a live report from a Palestinian solidarity protest that is taking place right now outside the Israeli consulate in Midtown. Also here in New York, the city council's land use committee voted earlier today to approve the de Blasio administration's plan to rezone Governor's Island, bringing the plan one step closer to fruition. Under the mayor's plan, the popular recreation site in the middle of New York Harbor could see large hotels and a retail shopping center for the first time in its more than 200 years of existence. This is Roger Manning of the Metro Area Governor's Island Coalition. Today, the City Council Land Use Committee approved a severely inadequate set of modifications to the physically and environmentally irresponsible Governor's Island rezoning proposal. They're setting themselves up for the dubious legacy of bringing about a sort of Penn Station 2.0. That's that's where a precious public jewel is greedily devoured. Details aside, the issue here is what is Governor's Island going to be? Will it be an irreplaceable, one-of-a-kind green urban refuge? or a high-rise, high-density commercial urban district with boxed-in value-added landscaping. The public has been vastly uninformed on this and are outraged when they find out. Magic has a better plan at govislandcoalition.org. Yesterday, opponents of Mayor de Blasio's plan to rezone Soho and parts of Chinatown rallied to express their disapproval of what they call the mayor's displacement agenda. This is Chinatown activist Zichun Ning speaking. In Chinatown, and be remembered as an advocate of racism and displacement, then do the right thing. 
Mayor de Palacio stopped the displacement agenda, has a community-led plan like the Chinatown Working Group plan, and the community alternative plan for Soho and NoHo. Later in the show, we'll talk with Lower Manhattan preservationist Todd Fine about the various mega development projects unfolding from Governor's Island to East River Park to Soho NoHo Chinatown to the World Trade Center site. In Georgia, Republican Governor Brian Kemp signed legislation today repealing a vaguely worded Civil War era law that allows for, quote, citizen arrests. A new, more narrowly tailored statute was enacted in its place with broad bipartisan support from the Georgia legislature. The new law comes 15 months after vigilantes killed Armand Arbery, a black man, while he was jogging in broad daylight through a predominantly white neighborhood. They claimed he was involved in a burglary, a claim for which there was no evidence. In Washington, talks resumed Monday between President Biden and key Democratic senators over the size and shape of the president's infrastructure package. West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin in particular has questioned how much spending should be allocated for the infrastructure plan. While D.C. Democrats dither, a coalition of Brooklyn activist groups held a 24-hour people's filibuster this weekend outside of Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's home near Grand Army Plaza. They called for the end of the Senate rule that requires 60 votes for most legislation to pass. The filibuster gives Republicans a virtual veto over Democratic priorities. This is Tara Curry of Brooklyn for Peace. Schumer has to make the most of his moment as Senate Majority Leader. If we need 60 votes to get anything through the Senate, we'll never get anything passed. That's not speculation, that's fact. We were out there for voting rights, union organizing rights, universal health care, D.C. statehood, the Green New Deal, the Dream and Promise Act, gun control, reparations. We need to get these things through the Senate. They're going through the House. Schumer's got to do something so we will be back with more after this short break. That was PBA by Nicholas Bertel, and you're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI Radio in New York. I'm John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief. You can find our May print edition in our red and white news boxes across the city. You can also find us online at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. Cross-border fighting escalated today in historic Palestine with Israeli jets carrying out airstrikes in the Gaza Strip while Hamas launched rockets at Tel Aviv and other Israeli cities. Officials in Gaza report that 26 Palestinians, including nine children, have been killed. Two people in Israel were also reported killed. The military clashes followed protests in East Jerusalem over an Israeli move to evict Palestinian families from their homes in East Jerusalem. 
Over the weekend, Israeli forces entered the Al-Asqa Mosque, also in East Jerusalem, and fired tear gas and stun grenades. An estimated 300 Palestinians were injured, along with 20 Israelis. Our first guest, journalist Alex Kane, will help us make sense of this conflict, as well as its impact on a heated mayoral race back here in New York City. Before we go to Alex, we're going to check in with the the Indies' Ashley Marinaccio, who is at a Palestinian solidarity rally uh, that was slated to start uh, today at 5 p.m. outside the Israeli consulate in Midtown at 42nd and 2nd Avenue. Ashley, are you there? Ashley. Hi. Hi. Uh, great to have you with us. Thank you so much. Sure. Um, yeah, I am here at the protest in support for Palestine. We have about 200 people here. Um, we're on the corner of 42nd and 2nd Avenue across the uh, street from the Israeli consulate where um, it's a group, various uh, activist groups from across New York. There's the um, Alauda, uh, United for Palestine, the Palestinian Prisoner Network, um, and a lot of independent activists as well. I see a lot of people who were, um, uh, there's a woman getting off the bus. Now there's more and more people joining us. But a lot of people who've been united in the struggle for Black lives um, across uh, from last summer and um, different activist groups. Right. And, and what, what are the messages people are uh, putting forward? Um, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Free, free Palestine. Long live Palestine. Uh, there's drumming. A lot of excitement. There's dancing. There was um, a group of Jewish, um, a group of um, Orthodox Jewish men who came and um, prayed alongside uh, some of the Muslim men um, before earlier today. Um, there's a there's a lot of support across uh, very uh, across diverse groups. Right, and we expect more people to join the rally uh, as oh, they, there's more they get more, off work. Yeah, yeah. There's there's more and more people coming. It's getting larger and larger. It's um, you know, I, I think you see it behind me. It's now kind of taking up most of the block. And I expect that more people, I mean, it's just getting started. Right. All right. We'll, we'll continue to join. We'll continue to follow this. And we, we know you'll be out there for the duration of the rally. We'll also have videos uh, online at independent.org uh, later today, also from uh, Kenneth Lopez of the Indy, who's uh, at the same protest. So, Ashley, thank you so much for joining us live from the field uh, outside the Israeli consulate in Midtown at 42nd and 2nd Avenue. Thank you, John. See you soon. Okay. You bet. <laughs> So again, uh, uh, Palestinian Solidarity Rally taking place outside the Israeli consulate uh, in Midtown at 42nd and 2nd Avenue, just down the street from the United Nations. And um, so this is a, a conflict that's uh, obviously drawing a lot of attention and a lot of concern. And uh, our, our first uh, guest uh, here, journalist Alex Kane, will uh, help us uh, make sense of this uh, conflict. Alex has uh, covered the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and its various uh, iterations and uh, related uh, uh, matters uh, for the past decade. Uh, he's a contributing writer for the Jewish Current, 972 Magazine, also writes for The Intercept, and he's also written about these matters uh, for The Independent. Uh, Alex, welcome to WBAI Radio. Thanks, John, for having me. You bet. Uh, so uh, d- just to, to kick this off, uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is often seen as a, a complicated one, 
And obviously, it's a, a, a long-running one, uh, going back at least to 1948 uh, with the founding of Israel, if not further back. And uh, but this uh, um, latest uh, eruption, uh, what were the immediate causes of this? How did this get rolling? Um, okay, so yeah, you're, you're right that it, it, it goes back to, to 1948 and even before, but of course, the current eruption of intense violence um, has roots in, in the past couple of weeks, although I should say that um, uh, while for most Israelis, the uh, occupation and, and violence um, that, uh, that, that is present in Israel-Palestine is, is, is often ignored by most Israelis because it can be ignored. Palestinians live under violence every day. That said, the eruption of this more intense violence um, happened uh, around um, the start of Ramadan, the Islamic holy month. Most Palestinians are Muslims, although, of course, there are, um, there's a, a, a minority of Palestinians who are Christian. But um, in Jerusalem, um, Israeli police made the um, decision to block off Damascus Gate from Palestinian gatherings at night. This set off um, uh, protests by Palestinians and were suppressed um, with brute force by Israeli forces. Um, there were also um, videos being uploaded of Palestinians attacking um, some Jewish residents of Jerusalem on the light rail, which inflamed tensions. Um, and the clashes at Damascus Gate um, were inflamed by Israel's um, attempt to evict uh, six, uh, sorry, four families in Sheikh Jarrah, which is a Palestinian neighborhood in Israeli-occupied East Jerusalem, which has long been coveted by Israeli settlers. The Israeli Supreme Court recently delayed hearing a case for about 30 days on this eviction case. So um, the, the Palestinian families remain in their homes, although they may be thrown out um, sometime this year, we're, we're, it's unclear, but the fight over Sheikh Jarrah, which, which also has a long history, um, was fueling um, a lot of, of anger amongst Palestinians at uh, Israel and the Israeli settler movement, which has an unrelenting drive to take over Palestinian East Jerusalem and implant more Israeli settlers there. Um, so this, as this was going on, um, uh, you know, uh, in Gaza, uh, Hamas was warning Hamas, the ruling uh, faction in, in Gaza that governs the Gaza Strip, which has been under Israeli blockade since 2007. Hamas warned Israel to um, halt its escalation in Jerusalem. And um, and then they fired rockets uh, beginning a couple of days ago into Israel, which sparked uh, a massive Israeli assault on the Gaza Strip, which is currently uh, ongoing. Right. We'll talk about more about this uh, uh, assault in, in a moment. But real quickly, uh, can you uh, touch on the significance of the Al-Asqa Mosque? And uh, it's located on the site of what was the, the, the first and, and second uh, temple uh, for uh, Jewish people during biblical times. And that second temple was demolished by the Romans in 70 AD. And, and the, the Al-Asqa Mosque, I believe, has been on that uh, same uh site for over uh, a thousand years um so right. you, you have you have two uh two groups that claim the the same land that uh, means quite a lot to both of them that's right um the al-aqsa mosque is the holiest muslim site in jerusalem it is not the holiest uh, muslim site in the world that would be in uh, saudi arabia but um it is the holiest site in jerusalem itself 
Um, so it does have religious significance to Palestinians and also the global Muslim community. Um, but it also has significance beyond just that it's a it's a site for for Muslims where they believe the Prophet Muhammad uh, traveled to and ascended uh, to heaven from there. Um, it, it, it it's a it's a deeply it has deep political significance for Palestinians because. Um, Israel conquered the West Bank and East Jerusalem in 1967, um, but because of the sort of explosive and religiously volatile nature of that site, they did not take over um, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, instead striking an agreement with Jordanian authorities, which uh, fund and control the Islamic authority, the, the Palestinian Islamic authorities that run uh, Al-Aqsa. And so um, it's really a site where Palestinians, where, where, where Palestinians have full control over a deeply significant site, which is not the case in, 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 in a lot of places throughout Jerusalem. So the battle for control over Al-Aqsa is deeply uh, significant to Palestinians who want to hold on to it as a way to um, push back against creeping Israeli takeover of the rest of East Jerusalem. Right. And, and of course, for the uh, so-called Christian Zionists here in the United States, many of them uh, aligned with the Republican Party, uh, that, that site uh, they see, I think, is, a potential, is the site for where the third uh, Jewish temple would go and, and connects into all their uh, um, visions of, uh, you know, sort of a, an apocalyptic uh, uh, conclusion to history. Um, that would uh, bring Jesus back to earth. So uh, that, yeah, there's a lot going on there and with all the significance around that for, for different groups, but the, the, this conflict that has escalated, just going back to that real quickly. Um, can you talk about just the asymmetrical nature of this conflict? Cause we, we hear about, uh, you know, from supporters of Israel that it's under, you know, under attack, you know, from terrorism and et cetera, et cetera. But how, how asymmetrical is this conflict uh, in, in its, uh, military dimension uh, that's now starting to unfold? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, because it's often lost in the headlines, because you see, you know, Israel, Israel and Palestine, you know, trading blows or Israelis and Palestinians fighting or clashing, which, you know, is journalistic shorthand. And under, you know, I understand why journalists may may need to use that, but it does obscure the fundamental, excuse me, power imbalance between um Israelis and Palestinians. So the first thing to understand is that there is only um, one uh, ruling, um, ultimate ruling authority in all of the land of Israel-Palestine, that is Israel. Uh, there is a Palestinian authority which is confined to about 18% of the occupied West Bank and only really governs major Palestinian cities. Um, so Israel, and of course, Israel controls everything that gets in and out of the West Bank, even though there is a Palestinian authority. So that's one thing. Palestinians don't have a government um, with the, all the trappings of sovereignty. So that's the one thing, to under, one thing to understand about the asymmetrical nature. And in terms of the military dimension, right, Israel is um, the most powerful military in the Middle East and, of course, is armed to the teeth by the United States government which sends about $3.8 billion a year to Israel's military, um, which uh, you know, funds sophisticated uh, weapons like F-16 fighter jets and tanks and bombs and rifles and tear gas and, 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 and so on. Um, whereas Palestinian, the Palestinian uh, 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 fighters uh, have very crude uh, homemade rockets um, 
uh, often, um, you know, funded by their, their, their other patrons in the Middle East, like, like Iran. Um, and they, uh, they fire these rockets pretty indiscriminately, right? I, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to downplay that fact that the rockets that Hamas and other Palestinian factions in Gaza are firing at, um, Israel, they have no, there's no guidance system on these rockets. They're really firing them wildly and they are hitting, uh, civilian areas in Israel, which human rights groups have also called, um, a war crime. But the, the fundamental fact is that Israel has one of the most technologically sophisticated militaries in the world. And the Palestinians, of course, do not. They have armed factions that have, uh, at most crude homemade rockets, uh, that are being fired into Israel. Right. Almost like kind of like a, a, a DIY, uh, militia. Uh, um, so uh, we have to wrap up here in a minute or two. Uh, whenever these uh, this kind of uh, conflict uh, erupts uh, in Israel-Palestine, of course, it, it reverberates here in New York City. And, all, and we happen to be at a point where we're about six weeks out from the Democratic primary that will essentially decide who the next mayor of New York is. And uh, yesterday, uh, both frontrunners, uh, Andrew Yang and Eric Adams, very emphatically tweeted their support for Israel and um, as you noted in the headlines, uh, really, Diane Morales was the only mayoral contender to to push back uh, and insist on um, protection for the uh, the Palestinians. Uh, can you just talk a little bit more about the the impact of Israel on New York City politics and and how you expect it maybe to play out in the in the coming weeks with this uh, latest conflict? Yeah, um, so it. it- uh, in case it's not obvious to, to listeners, you know, New York City has the world's um, largest population of um, Jews in, in the world outside of Israel, although it may be nearly um, um, on parity with, um, with, with Tel Aviv, um, Israel's um, largest city. So there is, of course, a historic connection between New York's Jewish community and Israel um, and um, I should say many Jews have many Jews in New York have family in Israel. They care deeply about Israel. They follow Israeli news. Um, but I should also say that the Jewish community in New York is divided on the question of Israel's treatment of Palestinians, which many consider um, to be abhorrent um, as the uh, 54-year occupation of uh, West Bank, Jerusalem, and Gaza continues with all of the human rights abuses that that entails. While the Jewish establishment in New York um, is an unrelenting supporter of Israel. And so when you have this, the, the, the establishment and the major political players in the New, in New York's Jewish community are um, in, uh, right-wing on Israel. And, and that's who Andrew Yang and Eric Adams are appealing to and pandering to. Um, I don't think Andrew Yang necessarily knows a lot about Israel-Palestine, but he knows that saying the right things about Israel uh, will win him votes, and that's exactly what he's doing. Um, uh, I'll just wrap this up in 10 seconds that, you yeah. know, Andrew Yang um, uh, has has shown a lot of ignorance about Palestinians. Has compared Palestinian movement to boycott Israel to Nazi era boycotts, which is a which is a, a ridiculous comparison. But he is appealing to the most reactionary elements in the Jewish community to win the votes, uh, so he can be mayor, and 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 it may well work as he's leading in the polls. Indeed, well, we'll have to leave it there. But Alex Kane, thank you so much for joining us this evening on WBAI Radio. Thanks, John. You bet. And uh, we look forward to more of Alex's uh, coverage of this issue. And you can also fo- uh, follow Alex on Twitter at Alex B. Kane. Uh, we'll be back with more after this short break. We'll talk uh, more about the mayoral election uh, with uh, Rose Adams of The Intercept, who has been delving into the uh, the controversy around uh, the comptroller Scott Stringer, uh, uh, 
alleged to have uh, uh, sexually assaulted uh, Gene Kim, a city hall lobbyist uh, who he knew 20 years ago. And uh, anyway, uh, we'll be talking more about that and what uh, Rose's uh, investigations uh, have found. was Naif Agbi and his orchestra playing traditional Dopke. And you're listening to the Independence News Hour on WBAI Radio here in New York. I'm John Tarleton, the Indies editor in chief. You can find our latest edition in our red and white news boxes across the city. You can also find us online at independent.org. In our second segment, we take a closer look at the mayoral race. Uh, the race was roiled uh, two weeks ago when Gene Kim alleged that City Comptroller Scott Stringer uh, sexually harassed and assaulted her 20 years ago when she was working on his uh, campaign then to run for public advocate. Uh, Kim's allegation uh, led a number of Stringer's uh, supporters, uh, prominent uh, endorsees, uh, in, including uh, State Senators Julia Salazar, Alessandra Biaggi, and Jessica Ramos, uh, to uh, withdraw their support from Stringer. Uh, also, the Working Families Party, Sunrise Movement, uh, were other groups that uh, withdrew their support from Stringer. Now, uh, uh, Kim's allegation uh, when it was uh, originally came out, um, there really was no corroborating evidence at the time, and uh, no other women have stepped forward so far uh, to uh, make similar allegations against Stringer. So uh, journalist uh, Rose Adams uh, at The Intercept uh, delved into this uh, story to try to uh, see see more of what the the, the backstory was here, and uh, she's uh, going to join us. She's joining us this evening on uh, WBAI. Uh, Rose, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Sure. So uh, about a week ago, uh, you and Ryan Grimm of the Intercept uh, uh, published a, uh, your your uh, investigation into the. The, the history between uh, Gene Kim and Scott Stringer that knew each other more than 20 years ago, both involved with the uh, Upper West Side uh, Political Club, the Community Free Democrats. Uh, can you uh, tell us what uh, you and Ryan learned as, as you dove into this story? 
Sure. So, you know, we we knew that there was no way to get any sort of certainty uh, around what happened the night of the the alleged assault. There is no way to kind of fact check what happened there unless you could track down the cab driver and have him remember and verify everything that that happened. So what we set out to do was uh, try to fact check everything else that she had said, because she had a long narrative um, about how she met Stringer, about what the relationship was like and what she did afterwards. And all those things were things that we could fact check. So uh, you know, Ryan and I reached out to people that knew them at the time on the Upper West Side, people that worked in the campaign or volunteered for the campaign and just ask them, you know, what their response was to these allegations and uh, uh, what, their, what they remembered and what they could provide, what evidence they could provide from the time uh, of, the, of the alleged assault. And so we, we got their testimonies off the record because of course it's a very touchy issue or on background really. Uh, and also we got some, some emails, some resume, uh, resume from her in 2013 that said that she, you know, kind of, it went against the story that she had been telling uh, before, before our article about what she had done after and uh, various, various forms of, of evidence, at least from other people that kind of rounded out the story a bit and suggested that some of the things she and her attorney, Pat Patricia Pastor, have said aren't, don't fully hold up, at least according to these other sources. Right. What, one thing that's attracted uh, some attention was Kim's claim that she initial claim that she was an intern uh, on Stringer's campaign. Uh, why, why has that been disputed? Well, that's an interesting one. I think you know, that was that was what she and her and her attorney claimed right off the bat, that she was an unpaid intern. And the original Gothamist article that broke this news cites her that way. Um, but I think that was an important sticking point because, you know, that, that sort of touches a nerve, especially you know, among people that have talked about power imbalances and other sexual assault cases, it, it conjures up an image of a young, you know, college student uh, working unpaid, trying to work their way up the ranks under a much more powerful person. So it kind of makes you think that there's a big age difference, that there's a huge power imbalance. And so, you know, the, she's now taken that back and says she's a volunteer. And that's what Stringer has always said she was. And the people we spoke to, including the internship coordinator for the campaign, confirmed that she was not uh, an intern. But I think it was a very important sort of part of the conversation because uh, it did make her sound initially like she was much younger and less experienced and some more subordinate than she was. Right. She, she was 30 years old? Uh, when the, She was when 30 this... years old. She had a, uh, a job elsewhere and she was a volunteer. So she did other types of volunteer work. They had an internship program. It's not quite just semantics because there was an internship program at the campaign, but it was only for high school and college students. And the person that ran it was 19 at the time. So he wasn't hiring any 30 year olds. So they were very different roles, volunteer versus intern. Right. And, and uh, you've mentioned that when, I, I think in, in, in your Twitter feed, since this uh, story came out, that uh, you, when you reached the, the uh, former internship coordinator uh, from that, um, from that campaign, you were the first uh, journalist who had contacted him. I mean, this uh, these charges were quite explosive and, I mean, really upended the mayoral race. Uh, Stringer was widely seen as a top-tier uh, candidate. Uh, so the, the, the mayor's race was uh, turned upside down, but apparently you and, and I guess Ryan were the first journalists to, to contact anybody from 20 years ago when, when all this uh, is alleged to have happened. It seems like that's the case. That that was one of the first things the internship coordinator told me was that he was surprised no one had 
no one had reached out to him. And it wasn't someone I found through some back end means. I mean, it's it's not too hard to find these these people. It's before kind of before everything was on the internet, of course. So you have to do a little bit of digging, but by going through, you know, people who donated to his campaign at the time, which is still publicly available online, you can you can find people that publicly list themselves as employees for his campaign. So it's uh it, it was very surprising to me that there clearly doesn't seem to have been a ton of rigorous fact checking of her claims or any any effort at corroboration. Right. And, and, and speaking of corroboration, what were you hearing uh, from these people who volunteered, other people who volunteered on the, the Stringer 2001 campaign uh, about the relationship between him and Gene Kim? What was their narrative? So uh, she had said that they had a, um, they had no romantic relationship and they had met uh, in 2001 that she, she initially said that Eric Schneiderman a former state senator had introduced her to him um, in 2001. But people on the campaign said that it was sort of understood, and I think this is for four sources we spoke to, said that it was uh, pretty understood that they had what seemed like a pretty casual romantic relationship or sort of light relationship is what they called it. That's what he, that's what Stringer said too. Uh, and, you know, they would, they would be seen at a lot of campaign events together that they would, uh, that they were, it was sort of acknowledged, even if it wasn't really spoken about, that there was a romantic relationship there. Um, so that that's what they said about the campaign. Also, other things um, about when she met him, other other stories have come up. For example, she 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 met him. Uh, it seems she met him through either one of the two Upper West Side Democratic clubs she was a part of, probably the Community Free Democrats, and she started paying dues there in January of 2020, which. Uh, and we got evidence for that, which suggests that she probably started attending meetings and earlier since, you know, it's, it's unlikely to start being, being a dues paying member uh, after your first visit. So, uh, and she donated to his campaign in 1999. So between the sort of evidence we got that way and speaking to people who were at the campaign who said that they'd known each other before uh, the campaign started, it seems like they had a sort of casual romantic relationship and a relationship that dated before 2001. Mm. And, and how, how many people uh, told this to you or shared this with you? Uh, four people. Four people. And mm-hmm. now the, n- none of them went on the record with their, with their narratives. Uh, do you have any sense of if, if they will come forward? Cause obviously it would, I, I think at, enhance the credibility of what they're saying if if they you know put their put their name to it i i mean i certainly understand why they would want to avoid the you know the the public scrutiny but what, wonder, what's your sense um, of whether they, they'll come forward further i i have a doubt they will um i, I kind of doubt they will now uh, but i wonder if this story continues unfolding uh, maybe they will at some later date. Um, I know that one of the people I spoke to wanted to go on the record, but uh, was af- afraid of public backlash, but also had a, uh, his, his employer limited what, there was a, a, a policy at his current job that sort of forbid him from doing that too. So there, I think, you know, it, it might depend on how this moves forward. Maybe it, after the news cycle moves on in a year or so, uh, they'll feel more comfortable going on the record, but because it's such a heated topic, it, I really don't. I think that there's just a lot of fear of speaking out and feeling that they're undermining uh, 
you know, her various serious allegations. Right. Of course, that there is some irony in that because historically, people who've been sexually harassed and have Me Too claims to make have also felt that that fear of of being put under the the, the right. public uh, microscope. Um, and how many of these four people were men and how many were women? I actually don't know. Um, I know at least one was a man, um, but Ryan spoke to a lot of them. I, I didn't interview okay. all of them, so I wasn't familiar with all, all of his okay. sourcing. Got it. Yeah. And, and, and can you talk about what the, the impact uh, of this uh of this whole uh, controversy has been on the Stringer campaign. He was uh, rising in the polls uh, nearly in second place when the allegation hit. Uh, what is What has been the fallout? Well, I think people are a little bit surprised that it hasn't hurt him more. He still, still seems to be third in a lot of uh, roundups, or at least in a, in a pretty recent poll after all the allegations came out. But I think that it's um, the fact, I think the, the worst effect to his campaign has been really the, the fallout from all the, uh, endorsements. There, basically, every endorsement that was high profile and that mattered, or at least so many of them, um, have pulled away from him. And I think that that definitely will have an effect um, on the whatever ends up happening in the race. It's uh, because it's ranked choice voting. I think you know if he was someone's first or second, it's easy for them to just drop him down if they if after these allegations, especially if the people that they support most who endorsed him have uh, backed away from him. So I think it's um, I think it's been his campaign is definitely still trying to um, do sort of a PR bounce back. He went on um, uh, he went on Brian Lair last week. He did there was a long New York Times article over the weekend about this, but uh, it's it seems like he's he's definitely his campaign is going to is taking a pretty big hit from it, even if the polls don't don't show that yet. Right, and, and I mean, one other thing that's been interesting with the endorsements is. A, a number of these uh, sort of left millennial uh, groups and 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 prominent uh, elected officials who've come on the scene in recent years uh, have all uh, pretty much withdrawn their support. Yet a number of labor unions ha- have stuck with him. The, what's your sense of why why there's sort of this uh, divergence here? Um, that's a good question. I it's hard to say. Um, I I I can't. I'm not really sure. But I think that uh, I'm assuming because there is so much this is such a heated topic and it's very charged kind of uh, having a sexual assault allegation is a very is a very uh very politically risky damaging thing to have i can see that you know someone who is very progressive another polit- politician or the working families party for example um someone they, they have sort of a face to uh their their group so for example one, you know one of the politicians that endorsed him they will have to personally um put up with any any sort of disagreement among their coalition for continuing to endorse them, whereas maybe a labor labor organization as a kind of more faceless group doesn't have to face those same uh, repercussions the way that one singular person would. I, I don't really know other than that. It's, I think it's an interesting divide. Um, and But it's, it's going to be interesting to see if perhaps some of these people that rescinded their endorsement will uh, how they'll talk about it in in a few in a few months when things have when this story of continues to evolve. Right, and uh, so the so the primary is June twenty second, I believe. Early voting uh, starts mm-hmm. uh, something like June twelfth. Uh, before we wrap up here, uh, what's your sense of uh, where where the mayor's race is headed from here? 
Um, I I think it's tough. I mean, Andrew Yang has been in the polls very high early on, but everyone, you know, it's, it's pretty established that even, you know, a few months before the election happens, name recognition comes into play much more than anything else. So I still think it's anyone's race. And I think also the effective ranked choice voting is going to be super interesting. I mean, this is a whole new ball game really for us. Uh, maybe it could really help someone's campaign that we don't expect, or maybe it can, um, it can sort of just bolster the, the campaigns of maybe Eric Adams or, or Andrew Yang, people that are current front runners. Uh, there are definitely different kinds of strategies I've heard that you know progressives are using where they say, put your last candidate that you put on ranked choice voting, either Eric or Eric Adams or Andrew Yang, the person that you would rather of the two of them. So, and I wonder if that's going to be something that people really implement and if that's going to affect the, the outcome at all. But uh, I, I think it's uh, right now it seems like Eric Adams and um, Andrew Yang are ahead and uh, it's, it's, but it's tough to know. I mean, it's, um, things can change in this, in these next, in this next month. So it's anyone's race, I think. It certainly can. They certainly have changed in the last couple of weeks. And uh, uh, Rose Adams from The Intercept, uh, thank you so much for coming on WBAI radio this evening and, and filling us in on the reporting you've been doing. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. You bet. Okay, we'll be back uh, with some with more after this short break. was Better Change Your Mind by William Onyebor. And you're listening to the Independence News Hour on WBAI Radio in New York. I'm John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief. Before we move on to our third and final segment of the show, I want to encourage everybody who's listening to support WBAI. Uh, you, you can uh, make a, a one-time donation or become a 
a recurring monthly donor, a WBAI buddy, and get all sorts of uh, great benefits from that for as little as $10 per month. You can give by calling 212-209-2950. Again, that number is 212-209-2950. You can also go online to give number two, WBAI.org. When you give, you help keep this station on the air. You help keep this show and so many other fantastic shows on the air every day, every week. Peace and Justice Radio, Community Radio, Non-Corporate Radio. It's uh, so important and so rare. And and whatever you can give is vitally important. Again, that number is 212-209-2950. Be a part of what's happening here, of, of helping keep this station on the air and broadcasting all its uh, amazing programming, both political programming, cultural programming, news programming. It's all important. And when you give, you make this community radio station possible. And and when we talk about the importance of non-corporate media, non-corporate radio, uh, our next segment is going to underscore the importance of uh, keeping uh, corporate domination out of our lives, uh, uh, both here in our city as well as in our media and our radio station. And uh, earlier today, the city, uh, as we looked at our next segment, the, the city council's land use committee voted to approve the de Blasio administration's plan to rezone Governor's Island, bringing that plan one step closer to fruition. Under this plan, the popular rec- recreation site in the middle of New York Harbor could see large hotels and a retail shopping center, among other things, for the first time in its history. And uh, hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers go out uh, to Governor's Island during the summer uh, when it's open. It's uh, it's an amazing place to go. I've been there uh, a, a number of times. You take the, the ferry ride right on over there. It's a, a unique place out in the harbor uh, to get away from the hustle and bustle of the city, but now uh, powerful real estate interests want to bring that hustle and bustle out to the island and make a lot of money, and the de Blasio administration is, is shepherding that along. There's been a strong opposition from a number of community groups, and to uh, joining us uh, now to to talk about uh, not only what's happening with Governor's Island, but several other mega development projects uh, that are uh, underway uh, in Lower Manhattan that are, are stirring up tremendous uh, community opposition is Todd Fine. Uh, he's a pres- pre- preservationist and uh, writer based in Lower Manhattan. Uh, he has an article in the current issue of The Independent uh, about uh, luxury housing that's uh, uh, that the powers that be are looking to build on the last remaining parcel of land at the World Trade Center. We're going to talk about that in a, a, a few minutes. But uh, first of all, we want to talk about the situation at Governor's Island. Todd, thank you for coming on WBAI radio this evening. Thank you, John. Good to good to be here. Right. So uh, uh, earlier today, uh, the City Council Land Use Committee uh, green-lighted the, the rezoning of, of Governor's Island with only a few minor modifications that the activists uh, essentially consider uh, irrelevant, um, the activists who've uh, been fighting this. Uh, can you talk about what the city is, is trying to do on Governor's Island and, and the, the irony that they're they're wrapping this up in uh, uh, the idea that they are uh, fighting climate change? Yes. So there is a fairly large development site, about 33 acres on the southern end of the island, which um, the city is planning to zone for skyscrapers and a lot of different types of development, everything but residences, but 
we always expect that could come in the future. Um, as you mentioned, they reduced the maximum tower height from 300 feet to two, uh, 225 feet. But uh, that is still quite different than what people expect right now when they come onto Guthers Island. And it, it raises the question of, of do we have to develop every square inch of the city? And as you mentioned, uh, they have claimed that they would like to create some sort of center to do research on climate change in this this large parcel, but they don't have a partner yet. It's just kind of a idea that they came up with to sell the initiative, which seems quite dubious, especially when you consider that the act itself uh, doesn't necessarily have very good environmental consequences. Indeed. And, uh, of course, the, the city is also uh, on the verge of uh, of demolishing the East River Park, also in the name of fighting climate change. Um, of course, the, the Lower East Side was hard hit by Hurricane Sandy, and the city has hatched a plan uh, that w- in, instead of uh, sort of modifying the park, they want to completely demolish it and then, and then put eight feet of dirt up and then build a new park uh, that will arise sometime, you know, maybe a decade from now. Uh, so – there's a lot of irony in that. And then another uh, lower Manhattan uh, rezoning battle that's going on that you're following closely uh, is in uh, Soho, NoHo, and in Chinatown, where uh, there's a big push for rezoning, kind of also being uh, sold with a with a social justice uh, argument. Uh, can you break down a little bit what's going on with with this rezoning in, in Soho and the sort of collateral effect it could have, uh, you know, all the way through Chinatown? Yeah, the Soho NoHo battle. Uh, is likely going to be one of the biggest, you know, political battles at the end of the de Blasio administration. Um, it's timed to have its approval happen perhaps in the last weeks of the administration. And they are really using a lot of the mayor's, you know, little political capital that he has left on this deal. Um, essentially, originally, uh, a few years ago, there was talk about some fairly reasonable uh, zoning changes in Soho having to do with uh, the the the, uh, the legalization of certain types of retail about the artist residencies, and uh, that eventually slowed down. And the city said they didn't think they had time to finish it within this term. But quite quite oddly, uh, when the when the uh, protest happened last year about uh, after George Floyd. The city took advantage of that moment to announce a major upzoning of the historic district, but also some other uh, districts adjacent to, to Soho in Chinatown, claiming that by upzoning the area massively, they could uh, implement some of this uh, mandatory uh, inclusionary housing, which would be an act of social justice that would bring diversity uh, and more mixed income to the area. Um, but a lot of, of the preservationists and other advocates who are looking into this don't think the numbers add up and that it's so quite disingenuous to, per, per, to present luxury towers as an act of social justice. Right. And I, I think uh, contrary to some of the imagery of, of the sort of the retail shopping uh, uh aspects of, of Soho, there's actually a lot of uh, rent-stabilized tenants and, and other people that have uh, currently existing affordable housing, and they're very concerned that uh, the escalate this upzoning will, will ultimately displace them. Um, 
and, and we, we just have about 30 seconds left here. Uh, you've also been following what's happening in the World Trade Center. There's one last parcel of land there that could be uh, used for affordable housing. Uh, how, how does that look? And sorry, we have to leave here in a little bit, but if, if you can give people a quick synopsis on that. Yeah, that's that that sort of blows open the Soho battle because the city and the state have a, a quite large parcel at the World Trade Center. They've decided to do housing there. It's public land. It could be a hundred percent affordable, but yet once again, they're deciding to do luxury housing on government land at the World Trade Center, World Trade Center five. Um, there's starting to be some resistance to that and at the community board level, but uh, it's, I, I detail this in the independent piece. Um, it, it needs a lot more sunlight. Um, and it's a shame that this is, this is our only tool for affordable housing right now. Right. And that's potentially a thousand units of affordable housing could be built on that World Trade Center five uh, parcel of land, which is roughly equivalent to the total number of uh, affordable housing units they would do with the Soho rezoning. So uh, it's it's definitely something to continue to follow. And and, uh, Todd, I know you're going to be writing some more on on these uh, matters for upcoming issues of the independence. So we're looking forward to uh, following your coverage more and, and hopefully having you back on the show again in the future. Thank you, John. All right. That was uh, Todd Fine uh, and uh, Lower Manhattan preservationist and and writer. And that uh, does it for uh, today's show. Thank you for joining us. We will be back with the Independent News Hour same time next week. Uh, I'll be here with my co-host, Julia Thomas. She had the week off. And uh, also, I want to thank Amba Gagarian, our producer, for all her help with the show today, and Ashley Marinaccio reporting uh, earlier in the show from the field. And uh, once again, uh, please support WBAI, and uh, you you can call that number 212-209-2950 or give number to WBAI.org. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week.